Welcome to the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast, where we provide you sustainable training principles for strength and building muscle, effective nutrition practices for improving and maintaining a lean physique, and practical lifestyle habits for becoming a champion of your own health, both inside and out. Hosted by Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein. Welcome back to another episode of the Eat, Train, Prosper podcast. Today, it is Brian and myself, and we are going to be going a little bit more uh, in depth on recent events in our lives, in our training, and then in our businesses. So with that being said, Brian, what is going on with you uh, in your life? The weather is finally starting to get nicer here in Boulder, which is really nice. Um, Oh man, I've been back and forth on whether to include this, this topic, but we're going to talk about it because it's on my mind. Um, so we, yeah, so we had the Boulder shootings last week. Um, it's take, it's been about a week, so it's taken, uh, that long for things to kind of like settle in and process for me. I mean, at first it was just like a state of shock and that it could happen, you know, where we live and to be so close to, to both my home and the school, uh, where Bryson goes. So it was about two and a half miles from my house, um, and a mile or so from his school, they had to lock down his school, um, you know, just for safety precautions. And, um, we really had no idea what was going on as it was happening. Like it was kind of like active shooter and everyone was like, Oh my God, what's happening. And then it was like, you know, three injured, but no one dead. And we were all like sigh of relief. And then as we all know, it kind of turns out that, that there's 10 dead. So, um, it's been, it's been really hard on the community here. Um, a lot of fear and just kind of people are shaken in general as I, uh, drive by every day on the way to drop Bryson off at school, we drive right past the, uh, the memorial that's kind of on the fence out front of the supermarket. There's all sorts of tributes to the people and stories about them and pictures and poems and, um, it's extremely touching and so sad. And, you know, to imagine that we were in that supermarket as, as I've shopped there before. And it's a place that I go regularly on the way to school to go get a coffee or something like that. So, um, I don't want to dwell on all of this, but it's been on my mind. It's been weighing heavy on both myself, my family and the community. And, uh, I just wanted to touch on it and let you guys know that I'm human. And I think about these things. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, what I thought was really interesting is it's different because Boulder's like a small, it's kind of like a small town, right? I mean, technically it's kind of like a city, but it kind of almost isn't. It has, it's like a, a, a very, it's a very unique place, you know, and it just was very, like when I saw it, I was like, oh shit, you know, cause I remember when I came to visit you last, like that's the, that's the, the, the bus station you picked me up at Table Mesa, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I, it was just really one thing, and I mean, this is, I guess, my own opinion, we hear about it more often in like cities. So you're almost like, I don't want to say you would come to expect it, but when you hear it and you're like, oh, well, it's not like the first time, but this one was like, oh shit, like in Boulder that happened, mm-hmm. you know? And it would, for me, I've like, I like Boulder. I have some friends there like you and stuff. Obviously I've, I've been there a number of times. So it just felt even closer to me for, for someone who like doesn't have a home and stuff, you know, it was uh kind of wild to me. Yeah, for sure. You're totally right about like the small town feel and and how it hits you so much harder. So I agree with that. But um, like I said, don't really want to dwell on it. So um, just wanted to bring it up, touch on it, let you guys know that it's it's been kind of weighing heavy. And I think we can move on and talk about brighter things like the fact that the weather is starting to get really nice in Boulder. Um, 
it's eclectic as ever. So we had uh, a three or four days in a row that were in like the high 60s. And uh, the high 60s in Boulder is like the su- you're so close to the sun that it feels maybe 10 or 15 degrees warmer. So in the high Definitely. 60s, you're literally like walking around shirtless and, and it feels like you're as warm as could be. Like you're not even chilly at all. So we had that for the past like three days. And then yesterday toward the end of the day, the winds picked up and the temperature just plummeted and now it's 25 degrees and it's snowing. So, um, so, so there you go. And then over the course of the next seven to 10 days, it's supposed to progressively climb into the fifties, sixties, seventies, and apparently the low eighties. So, um, that's just bolder weather for you. But I think the, my favorite part about the fact that the weather does that is that it means that when winter comes, you don't actually look at like November, December and you're like, oh, fuck, just going to settle in for like another four months of like desolate misery like you would in, you know, the Northeast or the Midwest or something like that. So here it's like in December, January, February, you could have a number of snow days in the 30s and then you have like a 62 and a 56 and it feels like spring and then it goes right back down to the 30s again. But at least it kind of keeps you on your toes. Yeah, the climate just in 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 Denver in uh, Boulder is really wild. I think it's cool because it's you get both. But again, like you said, it's not okay. It's like you know the the end of November. It's you know thirty thirty and under for the next like four months. Like you could turn around <laughs> in, in a day, and then conversely, it could be sixty, and then you wake up and there's like two feet of snow outside. Yeah. as Yeah, well. <laughs> we got snow on Labor Day this year. We got eight inches of snow on Labor Day. Um, and that's September 7th, I believe September. Yeah. 8th, I always get like Labor that. Day and Memorial Day confused. So I was like trying yeah. to remember in my head real quick, which one it was. Yeah. So literally it was, it was 85 or 88 degrees and you know, we were sweating and it was humid and just feeling awful and like so hot. And then we saw on the weather app that the snow was coming and literally there was two days of snow and then it went right back to like 90 degrees the next day and melted everything. So who the fuck knows, man, Boulder's yeah, it's weird and wild here. It's a. Uh, it's interesting, right? It's kind of, it's like cold. Like I have a sweatshirt on right now. It's probably like low fifties out. Um, and you know, I'm in Austin, Texas now and you know, our friends and stuff we talked to were like, just wait, the heat's going to come and you're going to be wishing it. (laughs) It was like this. Um, but, uh, I'm sure that will happen, but it has been definitely a little bit different than I had imagined. Well, I'm coming to, to Austin on 423, I think. Um, I need to confirm this with Lori on our call this week, but I think I'm going to be out there for the weekend. Okay, cool. Uh, we will lift weights, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be doing a bunch of filming, but we'll definitely have to meet up and get some food and throw yeah. some weights around. Or something. Yeah, I should. Uh, uh, well, we'll talk about it after, but I want to find out where you guys will do that at because that's something obviously I'd like to do while I'm here as well. So. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Uh, what's going on in your world? Um, so most recently, I guess uh, I am starting, or I guess I should say I have started a six-week mini cut. Um, I kind of knew this would come, but... I was, uh, you know, doing my check-in last week. I check in on Thursdays with my coach and I had been kind of feeling, feeling it where I'm like, you know, I kind of, kind of feel like I'm maybe just getting a little, a little fat here. You know, I've kind of topped (laughs) out what's, you know, reasonable for my, for this like lean gain phase. And I, you know, I sent my pictures over and he responded he's like, yes, these are the worst uh, pictures we have in the eight, in the, you know, the eight months that we've been doing this. And I was like, okay, so it's not in my head. Like, (laughs) um, and I mean, that's what happens. So I've been, you know, since late July, eight months, we've been continuously adding food. Um, and I'm up, you know, 12 pounds for, from when I started. And, you know, with that being at, at my training age, how long I've been doing it, like maybe four, maybe five pounds of that is actual muscle. Realistically, probably even less, maybe three to four. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's what happens. You know, you, you put on an appreciable amount of fat to get a little bit of muscle and the, the, what's really important and why it's, you know, nice having a coach help you with that is someone else like those objective eyes to be like, yeah, I think we're there as opposed to like, you know, your, your kind of fears run wild. Um, and then you cut it way too early or conversely what happens with me, um, you know, being completely transparent is I kind of get like addicted to that scale increase. And I'm like, Oh, 207. I wonder how soon I can get to 210. Like, but like, it's just, I haven't, I don't go through those checkdowns knowing like, okay, at this point, 70% of this is, is, you know, body fat I've put on going another three pounds. It's only going to get like, my ratio is only going to get worse past that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is exciting to, to kind of be changing it up, um, eating less food. But what's really funny too is, you know, with how dynamic our metabolisms are, like these first couple of days, I'm pulling food back. I'm hungry and I'm still eating like a lot of food, like well over 3,000 calories on, on still my rest days too. Mm-hmm. And like I'm hungry. So, I mean, not in like a bad way. And like obviously I justify it. I'm like, okay, and we're, we're not actually like – in risk or starving, you're eating like 3,600 calories, 3,700 calories. You're not like, it's not like I'm, I'm actually hunger hungry, but my body's still just sending me those signals. So it is uh just wild with how dynamic the metabolism can be. So what you said, you're, you're eating like 3,600 calories now on your mini cut. What was, I mean, you were, I thought you were at like 4,000, 4,200, something like that. Um, yeah. So that was, this was just like our first, um, the our first, first week, of the week yeah, yeah. first week Drop of a bunch of, of glycogen and yeah. And happens. just seeing what happens when we yeah. pull. So my carbs came back by a hundred basically okay. from five seventy to four seventy. Um, that, that's still a shit ton of food, man. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a lot of food. So is the idea like when I, when I think mini cut, I think like really aggressive, right? That's kind of like the term that goes along with mini cut where you're maybe at like a thousand calorie deficit for the majority of it. Yeah. I think the, the, the plan is just to kind of see, use this like six weeks to see as a tester, like, okay, if I, and for me, my weight will change really easily except Mm -hmm. going North, right? That's a little bit harder. Um, so we're going to see, Hey, we're going to reduce calories for six weeks, see what pictures look like. I think we're going to to really leverage pictures much more Mm -hmm. than, um, scale. And also I'm, uh, increasing my activity a little bit. I'm going to start going on like walks in the morning. And for me, I respond really well to that. So we're going to take like a conservative route and then reassess in six weeks. Okay. Where am I at? What do pictures look like? Can we maybe push food for another two, two to three months? Should we move into a, should we turn this mini cut into like a more traditional, um, you know, fat loss phase, just kind of uh, reestablish once we get there. You're truly, and I mean, I am too, but we're truly like the definition of like lifestyle bodybuilders. Like we literally live that life and treat it as if we're like going to step on stage, but like we don't actually step on stage. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I mean, I, I, so I look at my, how I view, you know, my training, um, the nutrition's kind of hard because like nutrition, like at the end of the day, like this is my career, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So for for me, when people are like, man, don't you just want to eat like pizza and burgers and stuff. I'm like, well, like to be completely honest, no. And uh, the real reason for that is because I feel like dog shit afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, and we can kind of talk about some, some, uh, gut stuff that I have coming up, but two, it's like, I experiment, experiment on myself all year long so that I can, um, you know, formulate some new anecdotal evidence or, uh, experiences. I can try things with clients and like, I'm always using myself and as an, ex- as a, an experiment and leading from the front. Right. Mm-hmm. So it makes it much easier because it's not just like, I want to have abs for summer. Like I'll bulk through summer. If I, 
you know, can come to some new conclusions and it will advance my business. Like the vanity part doesn't hold as much water as it used to, because now I, you know, really steer and and direct clients off of what I do from my own kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. So, um, it's basically just like this big training and nutrition experiment. Um, and I like it. I look at myself like a science project kind of. You're N of one. Yeah. That's really cool. No, I agree. I, I feel the exact same way. And I mean, that's just part of the nature, I think, of being in it this long and in that the process becomes the exciting part and progress is just kind of like a byproduct of the process. Yeah, I agree. I, I love the process. Um, and what's funny is, you know, I'm kind of in this position where now things are like changing a little bit and it has taken me a little bit to adjust. I'm like, oh shit, I can't just, you know, put 200 grams of uh, orange juice in my protein shake anymore because I don't have infinity carbs. I need to like actually plan a little bit now. Um, so again, it always comes with a little bit of adjustment, but it's, I'm sure it'll be, it'll be nice. And I'm going to actual, what I really wanted to do, um, in a perfect world was run some labs like blood work at this high end phase, because if I'm being completely honest, I think after, you know, eight months of pushing calories, it objectively has a small decline on my health markers, right? Just from oxidative stress, especially so much Mm -hmm. carbohydrate. Uh, But I kind of wanted to see what the changes were, but I just kind of didn't time it um, well, but there's always next time for that. Yeah, for sure. Plenty of bulks and cuts in your future. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Cool. What else is going on? Um, So we're changing training actually now as, uh, as you know, we want to leverage a little bit more of activity and, and volume changes as opposed to just the, uh, just the food. Mm. So it's a new longer cycle. You know, we, we kind of previously spoke about, it's like a 17 day cycle and (sighs) being completely transparent. Like I, I don't like it. Um, so I'm probably gonna chew on it a little bit, probably run like the first like week and see how I feel. And there's just things I'm trying to approach it like pragmatically and make sure it's just like not my ego, but some of the days it's a very, very different style of training than I really have done. Right. So some of it's that novelty, but other parts are like, there's an arm day, right. And you hate the arm day. I hate the (laughs) arm day. And I, and like, and I just, I'm not motivated. Like I'm not motivated to go in and train biceps and triceps for 60 minutes, you know? Um, and for me, some of it, you know, I wrote a, uh, an email uh, this week and it was on like op- optimality versus like practicality, mm. right? And I think like there's that, there's that threshold or that trade-off where something might be optimal on paper, especially when, you know, we're you know, in the context of like a research study or whatever, but in like practicality with in something that I think has a very large implication is psychology. If you don't want to do it and every single day you go in and you're just like not pumped about it, it might be optimal on paper, but in terms of practicality, if you're like miserable and you don't want to do it, like how optimal can it really be when you're just like, you know, pushing yourself to do it just for the sake of doing it and there's no enjoyment in it anymore. I a hundred percent agree with that. I mean, I've never had success with a program where I was going through it and just didn't look forward to the sessions, you know, like part of part of the training journey and getting the most out of it, I think is the mental game that you play with yourself, like leading into sessions and like building excitement and butterflies and like that anxiety that kind of pushes you to excel, which is 
it can like anxiety can be seen as a negative, but I think in this connotation, it, it more has like a positive effect, but when it's not, it's not that like positive anxiety, but it's more just like a lack of enjoyment, like you're saying, or, you know, negative associations with the anxiety of training. I think that that definitely is not a sustainable model. Yeah. Um, really good point brought up when I was, you know, I just came off that or a couple of weeks ago, came off that three times per week, leg training session. Like I had that anxiety going into those leg sessions or two of them. The one wasn't really bad, but it was like that nervous excitement, you know, like, can I really push it again, you know, this week? And it was, I would say it was like a combination of good and bad, right? I was excited to be able to like really push myself, but I could easily overdo it. And then I would ruin my day because I'd have to go home and <laughs> lay on the floor. Right, right. Um, but it was still like, I enjoyed that. There was that enjoyment there from like a weird, you know, masochistic type of way but it was there. It was present for sure. Yeah. Well, let's take it back to nutrition real quick. Cause, uh, your boy talking about myself, I've been eating too much food and, uh, <laughs> I had that, uh, I was talking like a few episodes ago about how I wanted you know, to continue my, my gain taining route, um, and keep like, you know, a third of a pound, uh, a week, which would, you know, take me to just over about a pound a month. And I was maintaining that for a while. I think I went from like 189 to 194 in 15 weeks, which is exactly like a third of a pound a week. Um, and then that continued probably for another couple weeks. And then over the last month, um, we've had, we had my wife's family in town. They were baking all the time. We were ordering in food and going out to eat and, um, yeah, I've just been eating a lot and it's, it's, it's weird. Cause I look at my, my three tiered, uh, tracking thing that I do in the off season where I don't actually track calories. I just track body weight, protein and satiety level. And, you know, for a number of weeks in a row, it was like all the satiety was like satisfied, 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 satisfied. And then over the last like four weeks, it's like, overfed, overfed, satisfied, satisfied, overfed, overfed, underfed, satisfied. And there's just like way more overfeds than there are anything else. Um, so I peaked my body weight after a big night of glycogen. Um, a couple days ago, it peaked at 199.6. Um, and now this morning after, you know, reining it in just a little bit, it's down over two pounds. So I'm in the low 197s this morning. Um, but ultimately, I don't really want to see a weigh-in in the morning that's over 200 pounds um, because my, my goal when I begin my kind of cut before the cut is uh, to get down into the low 180s. And I don't want to have to make this a 20-pound weight drop. I'd much rather make it like a 15-pound weight drop. Um, so if I can, you know, hang out at like 195, 196 range and then begin the cut, that's kind of my ideal scenario. Um, so I think what I'm going to do is just probably kind of rein it in and just be smart, like not even diet over this next like few weeks, but just make better food choices. And, um, and then hopefully I'll be around 195, 196 come end of April, maybe. And that's when I want to begin the diet that potentially will be 12 to 15 weeks would be my, my guess probably lose about a pound a week average. Um, but maybe a little bit more aggressive in the beginning, um, a little bit less aggressive toward the end yeah, and cool. hopefully end up at the low one eighties in the beginning of August, maybe something like that beginning to mid August. And that would kind of give me a good idea of where I'm at and where I need to go from there. Yeah. That I think is a, is a really solid plan, especially considering like, you know, 
you know, fingers crossed with Boulder that the weather is consistently mm-hmm. nicer. That is generally one of those like kind of small tweaks. Like you just have a, from the sun being out, it's warmer, more desire to be outside, moving around a little bit more, and you get some of that. That those kind of uh, low hanging fruit just from your non exercise activity thermogenesis increase there. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you. You mentioned that you're beginning to add in additional walks. What has your uh, step count been throughout like the eight month bulk? Like, what's your like weekly average? I mean, to be to look it up, it's probably abysmal. Um, uh, probably five to six thousand being completely. Yeah, that's just honest. normal movement throughout the yeah, day. Yeah, normal movement. Yeah. Um, so you it, adding in like an additional three thousand in the morning or something is going to increase your neat by like fifty percent or something probably. like that. That's a huge yeah. number. After we, it was my step count was probably like around the seven thousand through like October, and then when we moved to you know, um, actually. No, when we moved to, to Playa del Carmen in December, it really went down. But in Denver, it was actually higher because we, you know, walked everywhere. I walked a mile to the gym each day. Um, it was probably around 7,000, 7, 7, 7, 7, 5 till, till December. And then uh, it was honestly probably some of the worst in, since I've been, you know, loo- loosely monitoring in Playa because the gym was closed and I just worked in the apartment all day long, you know. Right. And, uh, it was definitely lower there. Yeah. So I think that three, you know, adding in 3000 additional or whatever, and, and helping that by 50 plus percent makes a huge difference. Whereas for me, like even in the shitty winter weather, my phone still tells me that I've been averaging, I think 10,200 is, is my average. Um, How? and that's because I get like 7,000 without even doing a walk, like just by chasing the kids around and like driving them to school and walking them to the front door and walking them back and exactly. all these different things that you have to do as a parent. I was getting like, you know, 7,000 a day without thinking about it. And then if I go for like one short walk or I, you know, listen to a podcast and I walk on the treadmill for a few minutes or whatever, suddenly I'm at 10,000. So it's really easy for me to get steps. And I remember this from the last cut that I did last summer that uh, I started the cut around, you know, 10,000 steps average where I am now. And by the end of it, I was averaging like 14 to 15,000 because I didn't want to have to drop calories further. So I just ended up finding myself like making more time to go for walks. Um, and it's weird because like when you're in this dieting phase and you look at steps as a way of increasing neat, it it really is like an inefficient way to go. Like it would be much more efficient for me to be like, okay, instead of walking 5,000 steps, which takes almost an hour, I could literally just cut like 200 calories out of my day, 200 calories. Like it's just, I, that's one of the things that I want to try to, to be more diligent about on this diet. Like, I think people have asked me like, what are you going to do differently? Things like that. And I think that I did a really good job last time, but I think that I wasted a lot of like lifetime just through accumulating steps that maybe could have been avoided with, you know, a little bit more control on the nutritional side. And it's not that I, I I lacked a a ton of control. Like my calories went from 3000 at the beginning of the cut to 2,700 to 2,400 to 2,300 or whatever. And to me that felt low. Um, 
But the argument that I always hear on the other side is, well, you won't want to eat as much if you're not as active, which makes sense too, because I would finish those walks and I'd be like, yes, I just walked 50 minutes. I can finally eat like this quest bar or some shit like that. And so like, why not just not eat the quest bar and don't go walk for an hour? Yeah. Um, I think at that, at that level of calories, that is what I would recommend and personally what I would do as well. Um, I would just not take that, those 200 calories and then reduce my time. So here's the other side of that though. And this is my argument for why I think the steps thing was important for me in that moment or in, in the, those moments. Um, because shit, now I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's fine. We can come back to it. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. I think, and I actually was just having this conversation uh, with some of the guys on, on uh, my clients on my call last night in terms of with dieting, right? Uh, the, the, the whole process and the whole problem of why we can't diet or why we shouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't want to say can't because like we've talked about on the podcast before, some of your natural bodybuilders will diet for like three quarters of a year. What happens is the metabolic adaptation, right? Your body gets really thrifty and efficient at spending its calories and it kind of bites you in your ass when you want long-term fat loss. Our bodies are faster at adapting to cardio, Mm -hmm. So if you're like, okay, day one, I'm on my diet, I'm going to start doing like 12,000 steps per day and all these things when you need to rely on cardio, once your calories potentially hit a, uh, I always want to say a ceiling, a basement, um, you have to ramp it up much higher and spend more time. And that's how these people end up with like, they're doing two and a half hours of cardio a day and stuff Mm -hmm. like that at the end of their diet. So I kind of like to use it as like a secret weapon and only kind of step on that gas once the, the food stops, you know, producing results in that regard. So one other thing about cardio too, is that I believe that if you're going to do cardio, you should do the type of cardio that you're least efficient at, because it's going to make your body work harder to do it. Right. You'll burn more calories. So like you, I'm a last resort cardio type person. Like my last diet didn't have cardio at all aside from steps, which, which are, I guess, a form of cardio. I mean, it's, um, it's cardio, but it's not. You get efficient at doing steps too. And that's kind of where, where one of the things I was going to say here is that like as efficiency builds, like walking is super easy, but you actually get better at walking. Like it takes you less energy to mindlessly walk over the course of time if you walk more. Um, and the same thing happens if you run or you row or you bike or whatever. So doing like a concurrent style kind of where you're mixing up and using the least efficient source of, of cardio will, will keep your calorie burn higher. Of course, it will also cause you more fatigue. Um, the thing I was going to say that I really liked about walking on this last diet is that I found it distracting so that I wasn't thinking about food. So the risk in not doing those 5,000 steps and also not eating those 200 calories is that now instead of walking for an hour where I'm not really thinking about food, I now have an hour where I am thinking about food, but I also have less activity, so I can't actually eat the food. Um, so, I mean, there's 100% like positives and negatives to both sides of that. And I think it's good to experiment kind of see, yeah. you know, um, yeah. So that's one of the the things I want to do differently is, is try to, to cut the food and the cardio down a little bit. Um, I want to focus on a higher micronutrient density, um, food intake because I think there is value in having the general meal plan set up, um, versus like an IIFYM type thing. And I know that, that like, 
you've you've talked about this too where where the quality of the food is way more important and when people iifym they tend to it tends to cause almost like this distracted state where you become so food focused because you're playing macro tetris all the time trying to think about like what you can fit in and i found myself like toward the end of the diet doing a little bit of that where it was like oh i have 200 calories here maybe i can have like half a bagel and half a tablespoon of peanut butter and like like i'm combining all these weird things together because i just like want those flavors in my mouth and if i just avoided those foods completely and stuck to a little bit more of like a bland, like bro type diet, then I know from personal experience that eventually my taste buds like just kind of forget what that food tastes like. And I start really looking forward to the more like bland bodybuilder food that I'm eating. Yeah. Something that's, I mean, somewhat related. I've had multiple clients uh, tell me this. So that's what I thought to bring it up. One of the things that I generally, in, I wouldn't say for you know anyone listening, it's not like a hard rule I do at all. What I do with my clients is I will put in front of you the objective information around alcohol intake and let you make your own decisions. What happens is a lot of people are like, oh, wow. Okay. So their alcohol consumption like reduces drastically. And then we go through things. And then as you know, we, we work back up to a lot more abundance calories and they'll be like, I had alcohol this weekend and I didn't enjoy it as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's one of those things like your taste buds change when you really changed the, the like the palate and the flavor profile of the diet you you eat especially over like weeks and months mm-hmm. and i agree you know when i go through these things it's i very rarely have cravings especially when you're eating a sufficient amount of, of food mm-hmm. um you'll find that um like i mean with all the eating i've been doing like i don't have cravings like i don't even remember what cravings feel like because of, it's, i've been eating for a process as opposed to like eating for joy for a very long time um and it does shift yeah, for sure. Um, you want to jump into some training stuff? Talk let's about that real quick. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Cool. So I am uh, in my first microcycle of my 12-day microcycle approach, um, my, or my first mesocycle that has a 12-day microcycle. Basically, um, my last mesocycle, as we discussed on the prior podcast, I had a nine-day microcycle. So it went upper, lower, rest, upper, lower, rest, upper, lower, rest. And now we added in a fourth um, three day sequence. So now it's a 12 day microcycle. And, uh, I'm just now today, I'm going to do the final day of the first 12 day microcycle. And, uh, what I did is I made the final days of it, the new added days, I made them pre-exhaust, um, which I'm really, really excited about because pre-exhaust was something that I've always been like a huge fan of personally. And science has been a little bit down on pre-exhaust. Um, the main reason science is down on pre-exhaust is because, okay, let's first talk about what pre-exhaust is. Make sure people are on the same page. Pre-exhaust generally means that you take an isolation single joint movement and you perform it first before a compound movement that uses the same muscle group. So an example would be like a dumbbell fly into a bench press or uh, like a straight arm lat pull down into a regular pull down or a pull up, um, a leg extension into a back squat or a leg curl into an RDL. Um, those are all examples of pre-exhaust, and those are actually some of the examples that I have included in my training. The one that I didn't actually mention that I do have in my program is the dumbbell fly into a deep deficit parallel push-up, which I know you and I have both expressed sincere love for. Yeah, it's, so um, it's the best, right? Yeah, so simple. So, yeah. 
So it's been, this microcycle has been really fun for me. And just recently, like over my deload, I kind of had like a thought about lowering my volume even more. And I know we've been like talking every week. It seems like we're talking about how, you know, less and less volume and less and less volume. And it's just wild to me because every time I lower the volume, I feel better. I look forward to my sessions more and I feel like I'm putting more effort and intensity into the work that I'm actually doing. Um, and I'm getting the response that I want. So this was like something that I put on my story the other day is I had a big, like, you know, walking monologue where I was talking about how people were giving me shit about the volume that I was doing. Cause I think I posted a leg day that was like three sets of hack squat and, uh, two sets, uh, or no, it was two sets of split squats, two sets of split squats, two sets of leg curls and one set of good mornings. So it was five total sets in my leg day. But what I was trying to say when I was doing it is that that those five sets took me over an hour to do because there's all these like ramp up sets that go into building up to the split squat. There's the rest periods between each leg of the split squat. There's the fatigue that's accumulated through doing each set of the split squat. Um, And there's ramp up sets for the leg curl. There's ramp up sets for the good morning. So when people look at my workout and they see that I did five sets, they're like, that's not evidence-based. You're doing like way too little volume. You did two sets for quads and three sets for hamstrings. Like what's going on, right? And so I updated my monologue the next day and was like, guess what? I'm sore. Like my quads are sore. My hamstrings are sore. My glutes are sore. And so I'm like, I did five sets, right? But would you say that I should have done more than five sets? Like, would I have been better off doing eight sets or 10 sets or 12 sets? Like, what if I would have been so fucking sore that I couldn't have then worked out again for another like five days on my lower body? Because the way that I did it is I was slightly sore. I felt fatigued. And then I took an upper body day or I had a rest day, then an upper body day. And then I did legs again. So three days later, I'm able to train legs all over again. Um, and so this brings me up to a thought about like how people count volume. And I think that this is like one of the most interesting things, because if you remember, did you ever read muscle mags back in like the late nineties, early two thousands, or was that like a little before your time? Yeah, I would say I probably earliest, I probably started was like 2003, 2004. Cool. So back in like the day in the muscle mags, they would always have these like pro bodybuilder workouts and they would list them and it would be, you know, 20 sets. It would be like four sets here, four sets here, four sets here, three sets here, three sets here, whatever. And it was like 18 to 20 sets. And that was the workout. But when you actually watch or listen to these guys talk about the way that they worked out, like when they would have YouTube videos and things like that would come up. No one was actually looking at that and being like four sets of bench press and where they would work up to a weight and then they would do that weight for four sets and they would call that four sets. The way that they were doing that is they would do like, you know, 10 reps at 135, eight reps at 225, six reps at 315 and four reps at 405. And they call that four sets because they did four sets, but like only one of those sets was actually hard for them. Um, And I think that that's the way that I'm counting my volume. Um, the same thing can be said for like guys like Dorian Yates and Mike Menser. And these guys were on the other side of the spectrum of the volume accumulation. So like guys like Arnold and Lee Priest and Jay Cutler and like big bodybuilders from the eighties and nineties or Arnold from the seventies. Um, they would count it in the way that I mentioned before, where it'd be like four sets of chess, but there's really one hard set. Mike Menser and Dorian Yates were on the opposite side where they would say, we're the low volume proponents. We only do one set for each, each muscle group or, you know, whatever, one or two sets. 
but they would do the same fucking ramp up sets. It would be the same thing. They just wouldn't count them. Um, so everyone's doing like the same amount of volume. Like they're all spending the same amount of time in the gym. When I'm doing five working sets, I'm really doing 15 sets. They're just 10 of them. I'm not counting as real sets. Um, so I think that that's really important for people to understand. And I also think it's important in when I talk about how I keep lowering my volume session to session and lowering my volume that yes, I am lowering my volume, but what I'm doing is I'm taking away those top sets. I'm still doing three to five ramp up sets, but instead of four top sets, I'm doing two top sets or something like that. Um, and to be honest, like, I don't know why I ever thought that I needed to do four top sets of something like that kind of seems for me, for me personally, as someone that's more fast twitch muscle fiber and can get more out of each rep, which is something else I want to go into in a second. Um, it seems silly for me to do four sets. I think that there actually is rationale for somebody that doesn't move with as much purpose and intent that they might need four sets because they're not able to create the same level of fatigue and inroads into the muscle stimulus as I am per rep and per set. Right. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think everything is what's hard is it's kind of subjective, right? And mm -hmm. especially when we, you know, different people, um, interpret the, 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 the volume landmark studies and that sort of thing is when you're looking at something and, uh, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but there's been this like really kind of childish and silly debate, you know, with Lyle McDonald and, and Mike Isertel over, <laughs> training proximity to, to failure and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to because everyone can kind of rate it differently. Mm -hmm. So like for, for my instance, like I've trained with you, you know, a bunch, like, and, and I know with you, like everything is very, very intentional. All of your, you know, working sets, right. That aren't any warmups are very, very deliberate and hard. You're taking adequate, um, I don't even want to use the word adequate. You're taking like what, four, five minutes between sets, uh, sets sometimes to lower body for sure. Yeah. Lower body for sure. To make sure that like set one, as little as possible is affecting your performance of set two. You are really, really cleanly establishing your baseline for like your performance metrics and stuff where mm -hmm. other people, and I find myself in this kind of ladder group. I don't want to take four minutes between sets. I get really bored. I just play around on my phone. My pump goes away and then I, I just don't like it. Um, I'm not saying it's, it, it's bad by any means, but we all will have our little bit of preferences mm -hmm. there. So it's really hard to compare apples to apples because things are so different for everyone. And I know like if like, let's take, let's talk about legs. Really good example. If we're doing like a hack squat or a, really like a, not like a crazy heavy leg press, but like a heavy leg press for like, you know, balls out sets of like, a, let's say right around 10, keep it simple. If you're doing four sets of that, you are going to crush yourself, mm -hmm. absolutely bury yourself. And to then turn around and say, okay, now I'm going to go do, you know, squats with that same intensity again, truly, and then do like two more things. Like, no, you're not. Like your body will just not consistently provide you that output. Mm -hmm. So again, what you come back to, it's hard to compare apples to apples because for someone like you, like those, it, it's difficult because I don't think there's like a, at least and not to my knowledge, there's a term I'm trying to think there. Obviously you have intensity as like percentage of one rep maximum, which we're not necessarily talking about in terms of like that. There's obviously like the volume, but like 
effort, maybe relative intensity, relative intensity. Perfect. Um, like yours, I know is very, very, very high where if someone's like, Hey, if I have four sets of 10, this first set, my relative intensity is going to be lower because mm-hmm. I know I need to perform sets three and four at around this weight. And if I really push that relative intensity very high on set one, I know sets three and four will drop off mm-hmm. at least substantially. So like when you're hack squatting and you take two minutes between a set, like if you hit a top set, that's like 15 to 20 reps or some sort of high, like metabolite style rep range. And you're resting two minutes. You must go like 15, 11, eight or something like that. If I am, so legs is interesting with me because I have this threshold, right? If I, in this threshold is more like a, it's not necessarily a pain threshold. It's like a Aaron's going to fall the fuck apart threshold. (laughs) And I have to kind of balance that, right? Because when I push too hard, let's say I have three sets. If I push too hard on set one, I won't make it past set two. Because I'll get, I'll get sick. Yeah. This is what you were talking about, about not pushing your first set to the house. I just know. So it, and I think like some of it has to do with, I think like your training age and your ability to know like how to push yourself when things are burning and stuff. But some of it could also be physiological based, right? It could be that, you know, we, we briefly talked about this. Maybe my blood sugars are dropping too much. Like there's all these other aspects that can come into play that, will really muddy this conversation, Mm -hmm. but it's hard. And that's one thing I know, like when I push really hard on set one, oh, I drop off hard, really hard on set two. Um, And then I'd have to sit there for, yeah, like probably four or five minutes to go again. For something like a hack squat, I will do that. Um, Legs are a little bit different for Mm -hmm. me personally than like upper body, I found. And just in terms of how it affects like a, from like a system, Systematic systemic, fatigue, systemic yeah. fatigue. Yeah. Do you, um, do you find that you get steep rep drop-offs on the upper body stuff when you take short rests or are you able to sustain like, you know, a 12 to 15 rep range across three sets? Certain things, chest, hundred percent, um, back, not so much shoulders, not so much, um, biceps. Yes. Hmm. And triceps pretty much. No, for That's a lot so of things, Mine, like, I think again, coming back to what we were saying, pr- both of us are primarily more like fast twitch. Mm-hmm. I will fail quickly. And it's those like grinding reps that I might be able to get a couple more on like set one. Past that, I have one rep that slows down. Mm-hmm. I might be able to like, you know, really muscle through a second one, but I usually fail. That's interesting that you said, I think you said, Back, no, but biceps, yes. Or it was the other way around, one of the and two. You know what it is? It's because I, I don't, I never train my biceps. Mm. <laughs> or very, like, I, I do right, it Right, right. So they're just not conditioned to they're it. Not the, conditioned. the work capacity isn't there. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I know, like, in my body, like, I, if I don't, so when I take my long rest periods, I still see rep drop off. Like, I'll still go 15, 13, 12, or something like that with four minutes of rest in between. If I were to take, so I used to do these cluster sets in my old program and my coach would say 45 seconds rest between sets, but I usually would push it closer to like a minute or a minute 10. And I would see rep drop-offs that would go like 20, 12, eight or something like that. 
So I mean, and that's like, you know, over half of a two minute rest, I'd be surprised. Like even with two minutes rest, I feel like that would go like 2014, 10 or something like that. Like it would still be like a really massive drop off. So in my pursuit of maintaining a given rep range, I guess for, for no better reason, um, I do take those long breaks and yeah, like you said, it does allow me to, to get a little bit more. I think it all kind of goes back to the conversation we had a number of episodes ago where we covered rest periods and the, the research associated with that. And it was talking about how longer rest periods uh, mean that you can put more effort into your movements, et cetera, et cetera, and correlate to lower volume needs. And what they found, I think, uh, to recap it was that something like two or three minutes rest was the minimum that you could expect to take and not need extra volume. And then anything under than two minutes of rest. And you now are at the point where your, your set quality is going to depreciate to a point where you have to do extra volume to make up for that, uh, Delta. Yes. And that's actually, I would, if, if you're down, I'd like to kind of take the conversation in that direction a little bit. Sure. Sure. This is something I wanted to talk about. Um, so I've found that at different periods of my, it really comes down to what I think is other kind of mental bandwidth and engagement. So like right now, right? Podcast is a new project, right? Takes up a a good amount of mental bandwidth for me, the business, et cetera. There are points where I just want training to be pretty much like a physical endeavor. Mm. Um, And then there are parts like, you know, for what I consider like really, really well thought out, developed programming like very pretty much what you do there's a mental aspect to it like it's probably as much mental in terms of planning mm-hmm. thought selecting weights as it is physical i am in a period right now where i it just seems exhausting for me to do the physical part of training i just mm-hmm. want to show up and sling some fucking weights to be completely honest yeah um, you meant to do the mental part you said physical but you want to oh sorry yeah, yeah i just want to do the physical part and yeah. like show up and, and, and lift um so Generally, that's like more of your like your bro style training where your um, rest periods will decrease, but you need, I don't want to say need, it's, you know, probably or suggested you need more volume because your rep quality decreases Mm -hmm. because you're not resting as much. So it's kind of, there's like that, that volume spectrum kind of shifts based on how, how much like mental there is in your training as opposed to like purely physical, right? There's things like the, the 100s workout, right? Do 100 push-ups and 100 pull-ups. If you added load or perfected your movement, you could probably get as much hypertrophy from maybe 22 reps or 23 reps or something mm-hmm. as opposed to 100, but your relative intensity and um, what I'm considering like you're suggesting the mental aspect is more dialed in with the lower volume. So you're saying with the sets of like with with 25 total reps per movement loaded is less than doing 100 reps unloaded. Well, not necessarily less. It can provide like an equal hypertrophic yeah, stimulus. Yeah, for sure. For because sure, yeah. you're, I mean, I guess it depends. Like if you're doing 100 push-ups and you're doing like 40 the first set, like you're kind of pushing the range of being outside of like the hypertrophy spectrum. Yeah. So I guess it also depends like how close your proximity is to failure on each of those sets and maybe even like how many sets you're doing. Cause if you're doing a hundred reps of push ups, say you go 40, 30, 20, 10, 
then that's four sets. And we'll assume that each of those sets is, you know, within three reps of failure or something like that. Then I think that that's the equivalent of four sets that you would do weighted. So then maybe you do like four sets of six weighted and each one is two or three reps from failure. And that gets you a total of 25 reps. So I think like hard set to hard set, you're getting the same stimulus. I don't know if that was the point you're trying to make or not. Yes, I think um, maybe that was a bad example. Um, like let's like pull-ups maybe better because like who's doing 40 pull-ups? I mean, I'm not. I know that's, <laughs> okay. I know that's okay. for sure. But like, you know, it's not if, if you're like another, you know, guy or whatever with a decent amount of, you know, muscular. I mean, I can do 40, you know, pull push-ups, but like 40 pull-ups, right. no one's really, I mean, someone might, but realistically right. it's less. So you're um, saying you do 100 reps, but maybe you do like 10 sets of 10? 10 sets of 10, yeah. Knowing that like, hey, you might count some reps that are like kind of questionable bro mm-hmm. reps where you're kind of like using some momentum or something like that. But then if you're doing like conversely, very like perfect, you know, uh, pull up form where you're just focusing on that lat engagement, driving mm-hmm. that elbow, not, you know, crossing your midline type of thing, you're going to do less volume, but it's like more targeted volume mm-hmm. as opposed to like, Hey, let's do pull ups as opposed to like, no, your pull ups are going to be exactly like this. You're, you know, only going to go to this range where you can feel that, you know, that muscle contracting Mm -hmm. your, it's like your, your effort is more like precise as opposed to just doing reps. For sure. No, I get that. And it's also maybe comes down to like tempo too. Like when you're talking about time under tension where like, if you're doing the more targeted style, like it's, it is more cerebral, like you said, cause you have to like actually think about, you know, the the tempo at which you're executing the movement and the lengthening of the muscle as you descend and the stretch component and all those different elements. So each rep when you're doing it that way might take you five seconds, but when you're just kind of gunning through them super fast, it might take you like one second a rep. So, uh, I, I get what you're saying that like all you're doing way more volume of reps, but when maybe we look at it as like time under tension, it might be closer. Yeah. And that's kind of what I very well put. Cause that's what I was kind of getting at when people are having these like volume discussions and stuff like you're comparing one small aspect of so much, like there's so much more that goes into it. Right? There's variables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many, yeah, many more variables. And I think that's, what's really important. Like, I mean, if you're doing, like you said, you're, you did two sets of, um, um, like rear foot split elevated squats. split squats, right? You did two sets of leg extensions. Uh, two sets of leg curls. Two sets of leg curls. And what was the last one? One set of good mornings. Okay. But I guarantee all of those were tempoed, full range of motion. Everything was active. You weren't like there was no low quality reps. It's very like the relative intensity, incredibly, incredibly high. Yeah. It took me 57 seconds to do nine reps of split squat. Yeah. So that that's is, like that's six seconds a rep or six and a half seconds a rep or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, I took a, a bit of a roundabout way to get there, but that's what I wanted to talk <laughs> no, about. No, <laughs> totally. I, uh, I a hundred percent agree with all of that. Um, and then I, you may have more to say on this, but before I forget, I want to add one other thing. Cause I feel like I was talking about pre-exhaust and then I feel like I got super distracted by something and didn't finish my thought. So I believe that, that, you know, the evidence-based community believes that pre-exhaust is, is not a great approach because it decreases mechanical tension of the compound movement. So what I was doing prior was explaining kind of what pre-exhaust is, where you go from the isolation movement to the compound movement. So if I go from 
a dumbbell fly to a bench press, I'm not going to be using as much weight for the bench press as I would if I had done it first and wasn't fatigued from the dumbbell fly. So the argument against pre-exhaust is exactly that, that the big movement that you're working is getting less mechanical, um, mechanical tension because the load is lower. Um, which a hundred percent makes sense. And the truth is like, for that reason, I haven't used pre-exhaust in years. I think the last time I did pre-exhaust, I was at, um, still at the CrossFit gym, but I was doing bodybuilding training and it was that, that exact sequence that I talked about. That's the dumbbell fly into the deep deficit parallel push up, And that was like my go-to for chest all the time. But back then I was doing a bro split. So I would do like, you know, my mechanical tension work first. I'd go like bench press, then I'd go dumbbell incline, then I would do something else. And then at the end, I'd be like, all right, let's finish with like some pre-exhaust chest work. Cause like, I guess my chest wasn't fucked up enough from, from all the prior stuff. But now the way that I'm using pre-exhaust is it's its own day in my programming. Like I was saying, it's the fourth sequence of that upper lower rest, right? So, um, Yesterday for my upper body day, I went straight arm pull downs directly into regular pull downs. So it was like a lat isolation movement into like a lat compound movement. And because my back handles more volume, I did three supersets of that. And because my chest needs less volume, I only did two supersets of dumbbell fly into deep parallel pushup. Um, so that was the way that I count volume for pre-exhaust is, is one and a half times. So I did three sets of straight arm pull downs and three sets of regular pull downs is six total sets, but I count it as it's, it's actually like three quarters if you count both. So I, it's, I would count that as 4.5 total sets for back. Um, because you're not getting as much mechanical tension on the compound movement, like we just discussed. And then for chest, because I did two sets and two sets, that's four total sets, but it's really like three sets in my book, um, 75% of the total combo combination, right? Um, so that was what all I did for, for chest and back yesterday. And of course, unex- not unexpectedly, my lats and the rest of me is extremely sore today because pre-exhaust is a new thing that I haven't done for a while. So novelty was the key to getting sore there. And that's exactly why we can't look at soreness as like, anything more than just, okay, you had like in this one moment, you had a a decent session if you got slightly sore, right? Uh, That's really all we can take from it. Cause I can't look at that and be like, man, this pre-exhaust thing is like the best thing ever. Like my back never gets sore and it finally got sore Um, because that would be the way I would have thought 10 years ago. But now I look at that and I'm like, well, that's just because I haven't done pre-exhaust before and I did. And now my back's sore. Um, But the cool thing about pre-exhaust, and I think the thing that I'm the most excited about its implementation into my program is that it gives me a session away from that heavy mechanical loading. Um, so it's just like kind of that mental reprieve, like you were talking about. So I still have three days where mechanical loading is, is the primary focus, but instead of finishing those three days and then going right back into a new microcycle where I'm doing mechanical loading all over again, I have this pre-exhaust day that I can go through that allows me to really focus on the musculature that's working without as much burden on the joints and the system and things like that. And it almost acts like almost acts like a mini like three-day deload at the end of each period where then I get back into into the mechanical loading movements again. So I don't know if it's going to actually end up feeling like a deload, you know, four or five, six weeks into this thing. But right now, um, it feels really good in, in the moment um, to have a session away from that and, and, you know, feel the muscle fatigue without feeling like the systemic fatigue. Yeah. 
the last thing I want to add to that, that you kind of brought up right at the end, um, joints. And mm-hmm. I think that is another case where using like either like a pre-exhaust or just moving a certain movement later into your, um, exercise sequence can really help out. So, I mean, I know I talk about this one a lot because I really like it hack squat, you know, if, and I find like past a certain weight on the hack squat, my knees get a little bit achy because I have to, I, I, I just push harder. Right. But if I do my hack squats, like after other things, I just can't lift nearly as much load on them. And then I can get an equal kind of fatigue or feeling subjective feeling, of course, with significantly less weight, but my joints continue to feel like butter. And as you age, you know, you might, there's that trade-off, right? Everything exists on a spectrum. You might think like, Hey, I want to be able to train my legs, but I don't want to, you know, potentially sacrifice the quality of my joints or knees. Like for myself, I've reached that point, right? There's no more tendon surgeries happening in my mm-hmm. life. I've had enough of them already. And I will, I will, I honestly, you know, this is the first time I'm kind of talking about a thing, but I'll take less hypertrophy to safeguard myself from having another knee surgery. Cause uh, you know, it's just something I, I'm not doing it anymore. Cause I, and you can't those. train if you're injured. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I learned that one the hard way. So I, that's the last thing I wanted to kind of bring up on that about the joints. For sure. And, uh, the, what you were talking about is another type of, of pre fatigue. So the way that I'm doing my pre exhaust is, uh, directly from an isolation movement into a compound movement, mm-hmm. um, which is one way of doing it. It's more of like a metabolite style approach where you're getting like an extended set, right? I'm doing like 12 to 15 reps and then six to 10 reps. So it's getting like 25 reps in the set. Yeah. Um, what you're talking about is moving compound movements toward the end. So maybe you've done your leg extensions earlier in the workout. So your quads are fatigued, but you're not carrying that metabolite fatigue from the leg extension directly into the hack squat. You're still taking your normal rest periods between the movements. Um, and I'm a huge fan of that too. I actually think that that approach has more applicability for like long-term sustainability within program structure. Whereas the way that I'm approaching it is more of just like a temporary, maybe four to eight week um, piece that's being added in. But, you know, metabolites adapt quickly, work capacity adapts quickly. And eventually the way that I'm doing it is just going to stop working. Yeah. Thank for Thank you for uh, kind of cleaning up what I said. It's <laughs> no problem. Important no problem. to understand. Yeah. Someone, I could see someone getting lost. Of this, uh, using yeah. Yeah, time. totally. Um, what else you got for us today, dude? Um, I mean, so we covered, uh, we covered training. Oh, one thing I want to talk about. I briefly talked about this before with my, um, kind of stomach history. So I tried this new thing. Uh, I was talking to my coach about it called uh, Thrive Gut Health. So I will kind of keep you guys updated as I go on. Uh, that Thrive is with a Y. And basically what it is, is it a custom probiotic based on strains of bacteria found in a stool sample. So I sent the sample out this week and I'll kind of wait and see. They have a algorithm um, that they put together identifying strains in different volumes and stuff like that and quantities um, and thresholds, I guess I should say. And then kind of determining the overall quality of your um, microbiome. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Everything with the, the, the gut microbiome is super, super new. And what I would say from the you know research that I've um, consumed and read on it is nothing is very conclusive yet. We're kind of in the wild west, early days of it. But I am interested to see how they classify my kind of, you know, uh, bacteria, um, variety and strains based on their like, you know, set of, of data from, from previous clientele. Um, cause I know, I think being completely honest, I'd probably put myself on the below average standpoint, which is why I get 
you know, these gut infections every handful of weeks when we travel. So um, I'm excited to see that and see how and if it can help me um, in the in the long term here. Just getting more information, uh, I would say that is something that I am. I've spent you know my uh, the past year. I would say the the gut health and understanding digestion and small intestine stuff more has been a large focus of my continuing education for my you know for my own clientele for my own knowledge in in, in terms of my nutrition company. So I'm very very excited just to to go down that rabbit hole and see if I can basically you know, make my stomach and gut a little more ironclad because right now it's probably tin at best or some <laughs> other weaker metal. <laughs> what, um, were you having issues with your stomach before you started traveling the world a couple of years ago? Yeah. So I was actually like thinking about this, uh, a few weeks back. That was really the catalyst for me in this whole nutrition thing, because I just, it got to a point where it was so bad. Like I couldn't go out to eat anything would just fuck me up. Um, and it was just like, it sucked because I'd be like, okay, my friends, you know, we're going to wherever for dinner, but I know I immediately need to go home because it's going to fuck me up. It's going to tear me up. Um, I don't really remember when that started in my like, you know, young adult life, but that is another reason why I know like, Hey, you know, I don't, it's really easy for me not to drink. It's really easy for me to say no to like getting pizza or wings. Cause I know what's going to be on the other side of that. I'm going to feel like shit. I'm going to need to go home, you know? And then the next day my stomach's going to be all tore up and then it's going to take me a handful of days to get back to my baseline. So, um, I mean, I, I know I, I was joking when I like the, I, when I sent the thing out on my Instagram, I was like, let's see how many parasites I have. Like, I doubt I actually have a parasite, but I, but I guarantee there's, um, you know, uh, gut, um, dysfunction in there. When I do kind of, um, digestion tests, like there's a really simple one you can do for, um, hydrochloric acid for your stomach acid. That'll have a lot of my clients do called a burp test. I never burp after, after, after I take it. Um, so I'll, I'll use like digestive enzymes and like betaine hydrochloric or digestive bitters and things like that, which help kind of bring me back to baseline, mm. but I haven't quite yet found for myself how to get back to baseline and, you know, thrive per se without some of these, um, additions. Interesting. Yeah. I actually never knew that you had, you know, significant gut issues before traveling. I thought it all kind of started in one of these countries. And then my, my theory was going to be that you have like some parasites in there that you just need to get rid of. But it could be, not. you know, it very yeah, well could yeah. be. I mean, I am lactose intolerant. I've been, you know, since probably around like 13 or 14 and certain oils really will mess me up, um, canola oil being one. And when you consider those two things, nine out of 10 times when you go out to eat, you're getting either dairy and something or your food cooked in canola oil. So mm -hmm. but perhaps I just kind of lost the lottery in that regard where it's just the propensity is high. But um, yeah, more on that, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of keep you guys updated as I go through and see a little bit more. But Hopefully it's, I mean, at the worst, it's just a little bit more to learn about what's going on with myself. Totally. Yeah. Well, I hope that all works out for you. Yeah, we'll see. And, and Jenny too. Else. How's Jenny doing? Jenny's good. Um, she's excited to like kind of make some friends and stuff like that here in Austin. Um, but she's good. Uh, back to training. You know, she's following the, the um, Paragon physique. Um, yep. So, you know, shout out to you and Lori. I know everyone, you know, a lot, the, a lot of people love that and stuff like that, which is really, really cool. So she's excited to get back to training um, really hard and cool. stuff. So she's doing good. Her stomach's feeling better. Yeah, she's doing, she's doing better. 
Nice. Very glad to hear that. That's cool. Yep. Um, all right, sweet. I don't have anything else, man. Cool. Well, thank you guys for listening. This, this is a pretty cool episode. Uh, Brian and I just going deep on a couple different topics that um, not as much like uh, questions or whatever we just uh, went off on. So um, let us know if you enjoy it. And with that, we'll talk to you guys next week. See you. Thank you so much for listening to Eat, Train, Prosper. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe or share us with your friends. You can find more from Aaron at strakernutritionco.com and more from Brian at evolvedtrainingsystems.com. Talk to you guys next time.